After a song like that, I want to strut. <laughs> I feel like the man. Oh, man, that song, it's fun. It's a ton of fun to listen to, but it also paints a picture, right? One of a very me-centric way of thinking that seems to have permeated the culture of the world we live in. Collectively, it seems like we've become obsessed with self, self-help, self-identity, self-empowerment, self-affirmation, self-e. We want to be our own saviors. We want the glory. Me, 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 mine, 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 now, now, now. Just like we heard in the song, we want to be the man or the woman with the plan. The one calling the shots, wearing the crown, gas in the tank, money in the bank, headed for the Hall of Fame, right? We want to convince ourselves that we know best. We want to build our own Kuzkotopia, our own personal monument to me. We want to will ourselves a victory and further reinforce our own self-centeredness. And though maybe we're not saying any of that out loud, there's this thought that's kind of rattling around in our heads. Something along the lines of, I'm the self-made man or woman. I can take care of myself. I can do anything I put my mind to and do it on my own. I don't need anything from anybody. I am all I need to succeed. And after all, God helps those who help themselves. Well, I am so happy to be with you today uh, in Fremont and in Hayward. As we conclude this series, God Never Said That, looking at this phrase, God helps those who help themselves. Uh, there's an outline in your program. I'd encourage you to take that out. You can use it to follow along with the message, take some notes. Uh, and as you take that out, uh, I want just a real quick aside here. Uh, if you're newer, you may not know this, but oftentimes our pastors like to emblazon themselves with the emblem of their favorite sports team. Uh, we've seen Paul or Dwayne wear their 49ers gear. We've seen Mike in his Buccaneers attire. Uh, and though I've spoken before, I have never bought into it. I've never done it. I caved, okay? <laughs> My sharks, they are fighting in the playoffs. They're fighting the good fight. Uh, go sharks. And honestly, I'll tell you what, uh, honestly, it just feels good to see a winning team represented on stage for a change. Oh, oh, shots fired. Hey, it had to be said. It had to be said, okay? Yeah, how to make sure you never speak again at crossroads. Okay. Uh, back to the point. Uh, so I wonder if maybe you're one of the 80% of Americans who a recent survey found uh, and that believe that this phrase, that God helps those who help themselves, is in the Bible. But if you went searching through Proverbs or maybe through the teachings of Jesus, you'd have as about, about as much luck finding it in there as you would finding me in a gym because it ain't there. Okay? Anywhere. Uh, but if it's not in the Bible, where did it come from? Well, this phrase has origins that go back hundreds of years or more. Uh, during the American Civil War, the Confederate States Navy adopted the motto, forgive me, my French is poor, et et deo de terra, which is help yourself and God will help you. Okay, uh, some attribute it further back to Benjamin Franklin and poor Richard's almanac, but it even appears a hundred years earlier than that in the writings of Algernon Sidney. Uh, others say it's older still and can be found as one of the morals taught in Aesop's fables. There's even a version of it in the Quran. Okay, uh, in fact, the very origins of this phrase may date back as far as the 400s BC, where we find the words of Sophocles 
No good air comes of leisure purposeless, and heaven ne'er helps the men who will not act. The more I tried to track down the origins of this phrase, the more references to it and similar sentiments I found in many different arenas. Uh, philosophy, religion, poetry, and more suffice to say that this phrase has been very pervasive for a very, very, very long time. But why do so many of us believe that it's in the Bible? Right? Where does that come from? Well, to understand that, let's first break down this phrase. In essence, what is the heart of it? What is it actually saying to us? God helps those who help themselves. Advocates an ethic of self-reliance, right? Uh, that we should do for ourselves. And that when we do, God will help us in that effort. And on the surface, that doesn't sound so bad. Uh, there are some verses in the Bible that actually seem to endorse that sentiment. Uh, in Deuteronomy 28.8, we're told that the Lord will send a blessing on your barns and everything you put your hand to. In Proverbs 13.4, Solomon cautions us that lazy people will want much but get little, but those who work hard will prosper. So there are several others peppered throughout the Bible as well that seem to echo this idea that working hard, taking care of one's own business, and being self-reliant are good things, and that God blesses those that are. And if we're talking about something other than our own salvation— then perhaps there is a way that the concept that God helps those who help themselves is somewhat valid. For example, uh, if you asked me to move a piece of furniture, right, but then just watched me as I moved the furniture for you, I was not actually helping you other than maybe to give you a good laugh. Uh, I would be doing the work for you, right? I've seen many people fall into this trap of inactivity. We ask God for help, but then expect God to do everything himself. We may excuse this by pointing to the fact that God will provide in his will, in his way, in his timing. And that is true. He will. However, that is not an excuse for laziness or inaction. A different example. Uh, if you're looking for a job, you should absolutely be in prayer and ask the Lord to guide and help you in your job search. But you must also actively be looking for a job. Right? While it is in his power to do so, it is highly unlikely that God will send employers to search for you while you sit on your couch binging The Office on Netflix. So, there is some truth in these verses, but they are not the whole truth. See, when it comes to our relationship with God, the notion that we can help ourselves actually separates us from him. Self-reliance moves us away from God, not closer to him. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to call it foolish. In Proverbs 28, we read, Those who trust in themselves are fools, but those who walk in wisdom are kept safe. Because in actuality, friends, when we start to break down this idea that God helps those that help themselves, and we weigh it against a holistic view of the Bible— when it comes to our salvation and our relationship with God, nothing could be further from the truth. So we're going to spend our time together today exploring the deeper, more complete truth behind this phrase. Because as we do, I think it can have a significant impact on our lives 
and on our relationship with God. So a holistic view of the Bible reveals to us that in direct contradiction to this phrase, God helps those who cannot help themselves. Friends, let's be honest today. We cannot do this on our own. We cannot help ourselves. When life gets tough and things look dark without God, we look in all the wrong places. Work, money, alcohol, drugs, sex, the list goes on, but none of it works. We are helpless on our own. We read in Romans 5, 6 that when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. When were we utterly hopeless? Today. This morning. Last night. Yesterday. Last week. And we will be tomorrow. Utterly helpless to save ourselves from the dark pit of sin and separation from God. And who is helpless? The sinners. And who's a sinner? Everybody, I am, you are, right? We read in Romans 3.23, it reminds us that everyone has sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. Furthermore, we know that sin separates us from God, which means because we're all sinners, we're all separated from God. Okay, but maybe if I just did this or that or stopped doing this or that, maybe that would be enough to, not so much. Because, and this is your next fill-in, apart from God, I can do nothing. Apart from God, I can do nothing. Now, this doesn't mean that we are physically incapable of movement or action without connection to God, right? There, because it's clearly not true. There are billions of people living their lives every day, working, breathing, eating, drinking, functioning, without knowing God, okay? However, what this does mean is explained by Jesus in John 15, 5. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If we want our lives to bear fruit, as Jesus puts it, if we want our lives to have meaning and eternal impact, if we want to fill the void of emptiness in our lives, we must be connected to him. You know, Lance, you say that, but I don't know God. Or or, or maybe I do know God, but even before I did, I got a great job. I've made plenty of money. I got a decent place to live. I drive a nice car. I got a solid marriage and family. I eat good food whenever I want. And I did that on my own, using my own skills, talents, and abilities. God was not involved. That effect. (laughs) Sounds an awful lot like the argument in Deuteronomy 8.17. Check it out on the screens and in your outline. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced my wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. God created you. He made you and gave you every gift you have. Without him, none of us would be here. So to summarize all that, We are all, each and every one of us, utterly helpless sinners, separated from God and incapable of doing anything of eternal value apart from him. Thanks for coming to church. Have a great one. Take care. Drive home safe. (laughs) No. 
I won't leave us there. And neither did God. He didn't leave us in that dark, hopeless place. He did something to help us, even though because we couldn't do it on our own. And that leads us to our next point, that is, I am saved by grace alone. Grace, period, alone, period. This is one of the distinguishing aspects of biblical Christianity. We are not saved by our own merit or character or performance or works or anything we can do. Did you catch that? There is nothing you can do. No act you can perform, no task you can complete that is going to earn you his salvation. By his grace, he's already given it to you. We see this conveyed in many different places throughout the Bible. Uh, Let's look first to the words of the Apostle Paul in his letters to the church in Ephesus and then again in Rome. Uh, First, in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. I want to encourage you to underline, highlight, circle, somehow highlight those key phrases. By his grace, gift from God, not a reward. He goes on in Romans chapter 3, verses 24 through 28. He explains it a little further, a little more detailed this time. And he says this, God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It's based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. And he's referring to the Jewish law. I want you to underline those phrases where you see the words grace and faith. It is so important that we recognize this, friends. This is world-shaking, life-changing truth. When it comes to our salvation, when it comes to doing life God's way, there's only one simple equation that matters, and it's this. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Jesus plus nothing. We don't need anything else. Last week, Dwayne shared with us the words of Jesus in John 14, where he explains that he is the way and the truth and the life. Jesus does not say, believe in me and do 20 burpees. He does not say, have faith in me and part your hair to the left. He does not say, believe in me and give a million dollars to charity. No. In fact, he states it plain in John 6. Uh, the disciples have, been, have seen the amazing things that Jesus is doing, these, ma- these miracles. Uh, he's healing the sick, multiplying food for the crowds, all these amazing miracles. And they want to know what they need to do. What does God want from them? So let's take a look at this exchange in John 6, verses 28 and 29. They, the disciples, replied, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? Jesus told them, 
This is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. You see that? Believe. Just believe. Not do, not say, not act. Just believe. Would you underline that last sentence? In Matthew, Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and most of the people in the crowd were expecting him to give some kind of instruction to follow, some words supporting adherence to Jewish law. Instead, he says this in Matthew 5.3, God blesses those people who depend only on him. They belong to the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's the closest thing we've seen to today's phrase so far, isn't it? Uh, But it's not even close to saying the same thing. God blesses those who, what? Not help themselves. No. God blesses those who, say it with me, in Fremont and in Hayward, depend only on him. This can be a very difficult concept for us to wrap our heads around. In fact, this particular issue has caused great controversy and divide in the Christian faith since its inception some 2,000 years ago. Churches have split, new denominations have formed, and this idea of salvation through grace alone was at the core of what began the Protestant Church Reformation started by Martin Luther over 400 years ago. Martin Luther, he was a German professor of theology, and in 1517, he wrote a detailed list, later referred to as the 95 Theses, of thoughts, questions, and propositions for discussion amongst other church leaders. Now, he famously posted this document on the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church in Germany. The items he addressed primarily focused on his fundamental disagreement with different barriers and prerequisites that the Catholic Church leaders had placed between believers and God. That a person may have to buy something, give something, behave a certain way, or perform a certain act in order to be made right with God. And take a look at what we read among his writings. It's on the screen. It is not in your outline. We ran out of room. Uh, So, yeah, I got a lot of scripture this week. Uh, So, here it is. Hereby, it appears that the doctrine of the gospel which of all others is most sweet and full of singular consolation, speaks nothing of our works or the works of the law, but of the inscrutable mercy and love of God towards the most wretched and miserable sinners. He continues, Our most merciful Father, seeing us to be oppressed and overwhelmed with the curse of the law, and that we could never be delivered from it of our own power, sent his only Son into the world and laid upon him all the sins of all men. Friends, it is by grace of God alone, Jesus plus nothing, that we are saved. Personally, this is an area where I continually struggle where I need constant reminders that God's love love and acceptance are not based on what I have done or what I can do, that it's not about how worthy I can make myself feel or appear to be. Uh, When I was very young, my mother was injured badly as the result of a violent crime. And by the healing grace of God, she survived and is doing just fine and is here today. Hi, Mom. (laughs) Um... 
But in the days and weeks that uh, directly following that incident, she was in and out of hospitals. Uh, and when she was home, she needed lots of rest. And she wasn't able to do very much. And while I remember plenty of sad and painful and difficult things about that time of our lives, um, what has always stood out more to me was something beautiful that happened in the bad. Family and friends surrounded us and did all they could to help. The church that we were a part of at the time responded in a way we could have never expected. They rallied around us. They prayed for us. They prepared meals for us. I remember lots of casseroles and lasagnas. Um, they made sure that my mom was able to get back and forth to her doctor's appointments, help me get to school, let me stay at their house overnight so my mom could rest and not focus on caring for bratty little me. Um, and they did so much more. My family, my friends, and church family became the hands and feet of God. They revealed God's love to me in a way I had never experienced before. Years later, I remember reflecting back on that time and thinking, wow, I didn't know love could look like that. But if they knew the kind of person I really am, if they'd known me, they'd know that I don't deserve that. I'm selfish. I can be foul-mouthed, quick-tempered, critical, negative, and controlling. I'm not worthy of that kind of love. I don't deserve love like that. I wonder if you've ever felt that before. And then I remember doing something that to this day I still carry with me in the back of my head. In that moment, I prayed, and I told God, I said, God, I am going to live the rest of my life striving to be worthy of that great love that was shown to me. Now, at first glance, that seems great, right? It sounds like that's a great way to live. But in actuality, it has more than once led me away from God and his great love. Why? Because I put the emphasis on me. I am going to do. I am going to strive. I am going to make myself worthy. But friends, the truth is, I can't. There is nothing I can do. I was not them, am not now, nor will I ever be worthy of God's amazing love and grace. What I must remember and need to constantly be reminded of is that I don't have to be. He gives it to me anyway. Let's look together at Romans 11.5. And since it is through God's kindness, then it is not by their good works. For in that case, God's grace would not be what it really is, free and undeserved. Underline those last words. If there was something I could do to earn my way into God's good side, then what would be the need for his grace? If you were here last week, Pastor Dwayne reminded us that religion says it's all about what we must do, right? But our relationship with Christ tells us it's already been done. From the words of the Apostle Paul, again, this time from the book of Titus, chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. When God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and love, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. 
Friends, the message of the gospel, the great hope of Christ, is that I don't have to deserve it. In his infinite love, God looks at each of us and says, my child, I love you. I love you in a way that can't be earned and that you don't deserve. Because I know you in a way that no one else knows you. As your heavenly father, I know that you are worth it. And I accept you. Exactly as you are today, you are accepted. You are accepted. You are accepted. You are accepted. You are now and forever unconditionally accepted. And once we allow that great truth to penetrate our hearts, when I surrender my life to God, I begin to change. Once we allow God to take control of our lives, that's when he begins to work in us. We start to make different choices. We start to respond to situations differently. We start to see things with new perspective. In Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Solomon exhorts us to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. He does not say, clean yourself up, get yourself together, get on the right path, and then come before God. He does not say, help yourself first and then God will help you. What we see time and time again throughout the Bible are the prophets, the apostles, the dedicated followers of God, Christ himself telling us, trust in God first. God first, then everything else. Put your hope and faith in God and he will direct your paths. We want to do good. We want to do our life God's way. But friends, there is not some spiritual checklist we need to check off in order to be right with God. When we honestly put our faith in him, he takes us as we are in our brokenness and begins to work in us. He doesn't expect us to shape up or ship out. He slowly, lovingly, through scripture and community and prayer and a million other ways, he begins a great work in us that begins to produce a changed heart. And a changed heart produces good works. Friends, my good works are the result of God's great work in me. My good works are the result of God's great work in me. Any good and righteous act I do is a direct result of God's power and influence in my life. Because as we discussed earlier, apart from God, I can do nothing. Look with me at Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. It says this, work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. We should shine the light of God's truth through how we live our lives. We should desire to actually engage in good works to help those around us. This is right and pleasing to God, but it is the result. It is the outworking of our salvation, not the means of obtaining it. 
I was discussing this earlier in the week with my friend and mentor, Jim Matthews. And as he always does, he illustrated it so perfectly. He explained it like this. We can believe that we constantly need to be doing good works as a method of earning our way into the kingdom of God, right? Essentially believing that our acceptance is based on our performance. Or we can conclude from a holistic view of scripture that God already loves and accepts us regardless of our performance and that any good deeds we are simply are expressing the great love and grace we have already received. Can you see the difference? Earning versus expressing. Because friends, the former is hell and the latter is heaven. It is God who produces the good in us. We are responsible for surrendering our heart, mind, soul, body, and life to him. And he is responsible for shaping us into who he wants us to be. We need only to be open to his receptive and, and receptive to his work within us. Now, what kind of person does God want us to be? Like, as he works in us, who should we expect to become? Well, let's look to Galatians 5 where we find what is referred to in the Bible as the fruits of the Spirit. But let's look at this in the context of what we've just discussed. Okay? This is not a prescriptive list of what we have to do in order to be more righteous or to be closer to God. Rather, these are the things that will begin to manifest in our lives, the traits that others will start to notice in us as God gets a hold of our hearts. Notice how this translation phrases it. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Now, I don't know about you, but I would sure love to have more of each of those things, love, joy, peace, and so on, in my life. Yeah, part of my regular prayer to God is that he would continue to work in my heart and produce this type of fruit because he knows better than, else, than anyone else how much I need it. So, a quick recap as we wrap up. God helps us even though we can't help ourselves. We are saved by grace alone. God changes our hearts and lives as we surrender to him. And then the last fill in on the outline is this. Faith without works is dead. But Lance, you just spent the last half hour telling us we don't need good works in order to appease God or to get closer to him. You're sending mixed messages here, man. What is it? What's the story? Is it good works or is it grace? What's going on? I know this can seem very confusing, okay? But believe it or not, all of these statements are true and they work together, okay? There is no conflict in this. Let me break it down. We come before God. He accepts us exactly as we are. We put our faith, hope, and trust in him and we surrender control of our lives. If we are sincere in doing that, then the natural result is a changed heart which will furthermore produce action, good works. Because our actions are the result of God's work in us, they are an indicator of one's faith in Christ. We ran out of space on the outline, so we had to abbreviate it there. But on the screen, we had the full scripture, James 2. Uh, follow along with me on the screen if you would. What good is it? Dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions, can that kind of faith save someone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, bye, have a good day, stay warm, eat well. <laughs> but you give them no food, and you give them no clothing. 
What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. Just as the body is dead without breath, also faith without works is dead. What this passage is saying is that true faith produces true fruit. Okay? An authentic relationship with Christ leads us to want to be more like him. And that means a heart focused on loving God, loving others, and living with great purpose to share his love with them through our thoughts, words, and deeds. Would you pray with me, please? God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for helping us, even though we cannot help ourselves. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to die for us, even while we were still utterly helpless. God, in the best way we know how, we want to surrender our heart, our soul, our life to you today. We ask you to take control, to begin to change our heart and make it more like yours, God. Help us to remember that what you want most from us is a sold-out faith in you. May we never lose sight of your unfathomable mercy and grace for us, God. Even though we will fail and fall short time and time again, God, you'll never stop loving us. And we thank you and praise you for that. We say it in your name. Amen. Amen.